move now to questions to the Minister for Ju of Justice. Uh, just before we do so, question number eight has been withdrawn. Um, I call Mr Harry Harvey to ask the first question. Mr Harvey. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Question number one, Minister, please. Call the Minister of Justice. At the 1st of February 2021, there were around 10,000 criminal cases compared to approximately 8,100 cases in March 2020. This increase is down significantly from a high of approximately 12,800 cases in the court system in September 2020. Although jury trials have recommenced, the number of new cases coming into the system currently exceeds the number of trials held. It is not possible to accurately determine the overall backlog of cases for civil business in exactly the same manner as for criminal. However, business volumes in the county court are currently around 60% of those in the first 11 weeks of 2020 prior to lockdown. Family court receipts and disposals declined from the start of lockdown. However, the dip in receipts was less marked than those seen in other business areas. Following the reopening of most courts in August, the average number of receipts and disposals has increased significantly and now slightly exceeds pre-lockdown levels. Mr Harvey, first supplementary. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Could the Minister um, outline how she plans to address the backlog going forward? Thank you. Well, the member will be aware from previous answers of the work that has already been done within the criminal justice system in terms of ensuring that we are able to continue to work our way through the backlog that exists. Court business was initially consolidated into five court hubs in order to facilitate the delivery of urgent matters whilst maintaining the safety of all court users and staff in line with public health advice. Following a series of COVID-19 risk assessments, significant work has been undertaken to make sure court buildings are kept safe, secure and clean, and that social distancing occurs in line with the public health agency guidance. NICS continues to move forward towards full business recovery following the initial peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. Only three of the smallest hearing centre venues are now non-operational. These venues will be risk assessed in due course. However, the initial focus has been on the larger venues, which offer greater flexibility. The reopening of the court estate, along with business directions from the Office of the Lord Chief Justice, has seen the full range of services resumed by the end of September 2020, albeit at reduced capacity due to necessary social distancing. Here, Mr. Cahill Boyle, I call Cahill Boyle. Carmel, good thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, Minister, was access funding available this in, in this financial year? Did you bid for any additional funds to tackle the backlog or minimise? There are a number of areas where we did um, receive additional funding um, in terms of court service. However, the money that is left at the moment in terms of um, the underspend is not something which we would be able um, to bid for um, and use in this particular year, which is the requirement as things stand. The physical measures which were put in place um, and a number of the other options, including, for example, um, the hiring of external venues to allow for additional circulation space, such as at the ICC Centre at the Waterfront Hall, um, all of that has been paid for, um, either through additional receipts from the Department of Finance or um, from reallocation of funding within the business area of the Department of Justice. Um, because where some of our business was not able to be completed earlier in the year, we've been able to use that money in order to support recovery. I call Doug Beattie. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, and Mr. Thank you. I know there's been an awful lot of work uh, been put into this over this last uh, number of months. Can I just ask? Um, I, I know you have been creating uh, COVID um, spaces for jury trials. Could you just let us know how we're getting on with the ones that are due to be finished in April in Antrim, Dungannon, and Newry? The work that's being done in the three smaller courthouses, um, which are not operational at the moment. Um, they, those are still undergoing risk assessment, and that work will be completed in due course. However, by the end of um, the current phase of work, we have actually more um, jury court space available now than we did pre-pandemic. So we have more courtrooms which are able to operate for jury trials at the moment, even with those three facilities closed, than we previously did at the start of the pandemic. I think there are 13 courtrooms which will be able to operate for jury trials. There is an issue, um, Mr Speaker, in, in respect um, of jury trials that is not to do with capacity in the system, but actually to do with the complexity um, of the trials. So, for example, where you have multiple defendants, you will also have multiple um, legal teams. You will have a much larger group of people within the court system. And whilst they can be physically accommodated, it does run the risk in trials of that nature of someone within that particular trial system um, to be either identified as having contracted COVID or um, having been exposed to it and needing to self-isolate. And for that reason, those more complex trials are much more difficult to schedule. So most of the jury trials that have been proceeding um, to date have been those that are slightly shorter cases um, that can be seen in a number of days rather than weeks, and also those that have single defendants. Called Kelly Armstrong. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Minister, thank you very much for your, for your answers so far. Could I ask um, if family courts will be able to sit into the summer to allow this critical service to continue and avoid further delays, especially when we hear that so many have, people have partners that have used COVID to postpone hearings? Well, I thank the member for her question. The family proceedings courts, um, in which most family cases are dealt with, are part of the magistrate's court tier, and those courts remain open throughout the year. Family care centres at county court level and the high court family division would normally have a recess over the summer. However, judges will be available for hearings at both FCC and high court level during the summer period, as they were last year, where a hearing is considered appropriate. From mid-April 2020, family cases received and disposed of have steadily increased. Following the reopening of most courts in August 2020, the average number of receipts and disposals has increased further and now slightly exceeds the pre-lockdown levels. The number of children's order sittings between July and December were 5% higher than in the same period in 2019. In terms of hours sat, there were 13.5% more hours sat between July and December 2020 than in the same period in 2019. There does come a point, however, where we do need to look at the capacity within the system in terms of the judiciary and others who are qualified to hear cases, as well as the physical capacity and the time available in the courts. And it's about ensuring that there is a proper balance in all of that as we go forward. Um, the Criminal Justice Board fulfils that role in respect um, of the work that we do in the criminal courts, um, but we also um, work on the civil courts as far as is possible. But the member will recognise that many of the control elements are not within the, guise, the, the gift of the Department for Justice when it comes to civil matters. 
Jerry Carroll, for Newcastle. I call Jerry Carroll. For Thanks, Deputy Speaker. Thanks, the Minister, for answers uh, so far. Minister, given that uh, there have been over a thousand magistrates, defendants received through the court process in relation to TV licence non-payment from March to December of last year, can I ask for your assessment as to how far that is, given there are so many people waiting on uh, court cases for serious crime instances, as you refer to? Thank you. The issue of scheduling um, of of cases in the courts is not a matter for the Department of Justice, it is entirely a matter for the independent judiciary. So it isn't for me to tell them what should be prioritised and not prioritised, and it wouldn't be appropriate for me to comment on the member's question. Can we bring uh, Colin McGrath into the spotlight, please? Question, Mr McGrath. Uh, question number two, Mr Deputy Speaker. Um, Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. It is my preference and intention that an advertising campaign will start in late autumn to align with the introduction of the new domestic abuse offence. This will involve a multimedia approach similar to the See the Signs campaign that has been running for the last three years. It will be important in raising awareness that we, all re that we reach all sections of society, regardless of gender, age, sexual orientation or any other attribute given that anyone can be a victim or an abuser. The campaign will be externally sourced, but it is important that key messaging is developed in consultation with our statutory and voluntary partners, representing as wide a range of views as possible. Tackling domestic abuse is a key priority for me and for the Department, and along with our partners, we are committed to ensuring that both victims and perpetrators are aware of the new offence and that victims are aware of where they can get the help and support that they need. In advance of any new campaign, my department, together with partners, continue to deliver a number of initiatives to raise public awareness of domestic abuse. I relaunched the department's Say the Science campaign at Christmas and into the new year, and other organisations similarly undertook campaigns earlier this year to promote the important message <clears throat> that help remains available, including from PSNI and Crime Stoppers. Awareness also continues to be raised through a media campaign run by the 24-hour Domestic and Sexual Abuse Helpline ongoing social media activity, as well as work undertaken by our statutory and voluntary sector partners, including policing and community safety partnerships. Colin McGrath. A supplementary question for Colin McGrath. Thank you very much, Mr Deputy Speaker, and I thank the Minister for that response. Um, we certainly have welcomed the introduction of this incredibly important legislation and would like to see it implemented as quickly as possible. And, an important aspect of that is uh, the messaging that goes with it. But could the Minister confirm uh, that no budgetary pressures will hinder uh, the rolling out of the very important campaign to make sure that there's full awareness within the community of all aspects of this legislation? Well, I expect the cost of an effective three-year multimedia advertising campaign of this type to be around half a million pounds. It is likely this cost will be skewed towards year one in order to allow the development of materials for television and radio. A campaign over three years will provide exposure to a wider audience and ensure longevity of the key messages being delivered. I'm confident that we will be able to take this forward um, and that the Department is committed to do so ahead of the operationalisation of the domestic abuse offence. Minister, can you give us an update on the tendering for an advocacy, an advocacy support service for victims of domestic and sexual violence and abuse? 
The tendering for the support service, as members will be aware, is something um, that I've previously answered questions um, on in the Chamber. We are at the moment um, working on the basis um, that it is out to tender because we were unable, unfortunately, um, to get the kind of collaborative approach that we had hoped we would have and so have gone to an open tender. At this stage, it wouldn't be appropriate, I don't think, for me to say further um, in terms of, of where we are with that scheme, um, but I would be happy to write to the member um, just to update him at the appropriate time um, as to where the scheme lies. It is, as you know, our intention that we would have a single advocacy service um, and that would be able to provide um, support to victims and witnesses um, in, in, a in a way that is useful, both for domestic abuse and sexual crime. Um, and so that's something that we are progressing with on that basis. Call Rosemary Barton. Thank you. Minister, thank you for your answers so far. Minister, um, in relation to these advocacy support services for domestic violence, uh, can, you get, can you give me an expected timeline when they will be launched? Can't, but I will be happy to do so um, in writing to the member. Call Rachel Woods for question. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker, and thank the Minister for her answers so far. We do have much to do in terms of awareness, um, no less to on education, domestic abuse, course of control, and what a healthy relationship is. But I would like to ask the Minister about budget. What additional budget and resources has her department allocated to fully implement the Domestic Abuse and Civil Proceedings Act once it receives royal assent this year? The member will be aware, as a member um, of the uh, Justice Committee, um, that the draft budgets have been circulated to committees for consideration. As she will also be aware, there is no additional funding um, for any department in this current year. We are in a flat cash situation, and the same is true for the Department of Justice as is true for other departments. Um, if she scrutinises the information which has been sent to the Department of Justice, she will see the allocations um, set out therein. However, it is our intention um, to continue to work through those issues with the Department of Finance um, and to make such representations as we can so that any money that is carried over from this year um, into future years uh, will be able to be utilised against this and a number of other priorities. With your permission, Mr Deputy Speaker, I intend to group questions three and four. One of my key priorities is ensuring that we do all we can to protect individuals, communities and businesses in Northern Ireland from organised crime in all its forms. Effective collaboration between governments and law enforcement agencies is key to successfully disrupting and preventing organised criminality. I remain committed in partnership with my colleague Helen McEntee, TD, Minister of Justice, to enabling and supporting law enforcement agencies north and south of the border to continue work collectively and proactively to combat organised crime. Cooperation between the Police Service of Northern Ireland and Angarda Shikana and other law enforcement partners is already well established and working effectively. Now that we have left the EU, a key priority is to ensure continued access to available resources and measures for effective cross-border and international collaboration to pursue organised criminals, including operational collaboration through the Joint Agency Task Force, Joint Investigation Teams where appropriate, and Europol. We have a good record of working in partnership with our colleagues in the South, including through the Operational Joint Agency Task Force. This was established following the Fresh Start Agreement as part of a concerted and enhanced effort to tackle organised crime and cross-jurisdictional crime. It comprises a strategic oversight group chaired by the PSNI Deputy Chief Constable and Angarda Shikana Deputy Commissioner to determine on an ongoing basis the priority areas in cross-border organised crime. 
In accordance with the provisions of the inter intergovernmental agreement, reports on the, uh, the joint um, task force are presented on a six-monthly basis to the meeting of the respective justice ministers under the IGA framework on cooperation on criminal justice matters. Following the IGA, meet, the IGA meeting in November 2020, I made an oral statement to the Assembly which included a substantive update on the work of the JATF. Thank you very much, Minister. Thank you for that very comprehensive answer uh, to the question and welcome uh, the cooperation both north and south. Uh, Minister, um, can you confirm or do you foresee any challenges to cross-border cooperation, uh, specifically in the context of the post-Brexit environment? The outcome for justice um, in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement that was agreed by the UK and EU on 24 December 2020 replicates most of the key EU justice measures that the UK had access to as an EU member state. The one key area not included in the TCA is continued access to the Schengen Information System, or SIS2, as it's more commonly known. The TCA does, however, allow the UK to negotiate um, a similar arrangement with member states on a bilateral basis through the protocol. We will look to the UK to agree bilateral arrangements, including with Ireland, once the new arrangements have bedded in and a proper gap analysis has taken place. I think it's important to recognise that there is also the wider issue um, with data adequacy, and of course the decision on that is due to be taken within the first six months um, from the agreement being signed. Without that, there will of course be implications um, for the live sharing of data and information between police services. However, at this point, because of the derogation for the first six months, um, that is not yet operational, and there are some um, planned ways of working through that, should it fall without um, a proper data adequacy agreement being in place. However, my understanding is that the likelihood is high of such a data adequacy agreement being agreed. I thank the Minister for her answers thus far. Has the Minister engaged with her counterpart in the South to ascertain the veracity of allegations and revelations made in the BBC Panorama programme Boxing and the Mob uh, and assess alongside the PSNI and, and Garda the, the reach of organised crime here? I know it's an issue her party colleague Stephen Farry has raised in Westminster. It is not an issue that I have had the opportunity to raise uh, with Minister McEntee to date because we haven't met um, since the programme aired, nor would it be appropriate, I think, for me to speculate on things that are in the media as opposed to assessments that are provided um, to me by the PSNI. We do have, um, I think, a good relationship of working closely together where there are issues, um, and certainly in terms of the priority areas. Um, we have advanced issues on financial crime, excise fraud, human trafficking and drug crime, amongst others. And so much of what the member refers to would be picked up by the work of the JATF and indeed the Organised Crime Task Force more broadly. Thank the Minister for her question so far. Minister, given the executive commitment to tackling criminal gangs, including those masquerading as loyalist paramilitaries, would you agree with me that the First Minister's meeting with the LCC, who purport to represent loyalist communities, communities which I would have to say it looks more like they are intimidating, that that was inappropriate and does not give the kind of leadership that we would expect 
from a leader of unionism or a leader of this House? Well, far be it from me to opine on how other parties conduct their business, Mr Deputy Speaker. Um, it, it, it's not a matter for me as Justice Minister in that regard. However, it is a matter for me as Justice Minister when all ministers in the executive have signed up to the paramilitary um, programme, uh, when, they have, when they have signed up to tackling the paramilitarism programme. Because that programme requires us all to ensure that where we wish to engage with at-risk communities, where we wish to hear the voices of those who may be vulnerable to paramilitary <coughs> influence, that we do so through the appropriate legal mechanisms, that we don't give any credence or validity to members of paramilitary organisations, irrespective of the community from which they emerge. And I do believe that by giving a platform to people who are still in prescribed organisations or who claim to be, because, Mr Speaker, it isn't for me to know the individuals and their membership, um, but they claim to be representatives of prescribed organisations, I think that is a matter of concern and sends out a worrying message to those in many parts of our community who still live under the coercive control of those same paramilitary organisations. And so I would appeal to all members of this House, including those who seem to find the question amusing, to actually do work with the Department of Justice and right across the community to ensure that no paramilitary organisations have any influence whatsoever um, in the business either of this House or in the business of running our communities outside. Thank you, Minister. And just before we move on to the next question, I would ask members to refrain from making commentary or laughing from seated positions. It's not appropriate during the course of, of these uh, plenaries. Um, I, now I call Mike Nesbitt. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. With the Chief Constable warning that uh, his police numbers could drop 800 below the 7,500 committed to a new decade, new approach. Does the Minister have concerns that this will impact negatively on cross-border cooperation in tackling organised crime? I think it's very clear um, that if there is a drop in police numbers, it will have an impact on policing. There is no alternative. In fact, most of the statutory duties which are performed by my department are heavily reliant on us having the personnel available um, to be able to provide those statutory duties. And as I have made the case at the executive um, and indeed to the committee, there is very little wiggle room um, for the Department of Justice when it comes to our budget, other than um, to see personnel reduced. I don't believe um, that it will impact in the sense that I don't believe that it will be a lower priority for the PSNI. But undoubtedly, um, there will be challenges if we find a reduction um, in the number of officers that are available to the Chief Constable. Members will be aware, of course, that it is a matter for the Chief Constable himself to decide what his priorities are when he receives his funding from the Department of Justice. And so if he is so minded, he can put that into officers or he can put it into other issues that need to be addressed. I'm aware from my conversations with him that he too faces a very challenging environment um, over the next number um, of years. And so we will work with him in order to try to secure the additional finances that would be required in order that such um, reductions in numbers will not be necessitated. But the one thing over which I have no control, Mr Speaker, is the budget that is finally allocated. Um, and when we get that budget allocated, we have no alternative but to live within our means. I call Jim Allister. So I want to ask the uh, Minister about the role of the National Crime Agency in respect of the cross-border task force. Um, 
can't you expand a little on how extensive that is? And since that uh, agency does not have a standalone budget, obviously all expenditure eats into the budgets of each constituent part. How far is that an inhibitor of involvement in the uh, cross-border uh, uh, cooperation agency? With respect to the National Crime Agency, the work and the intelligence that the National Crime Agency can provide in terms of tackling um, cross-border crime, um, not just, I have to say, at the Irish border, but indeed um, cross-border crime um, more widely, is hugely important. It is also important because many of the mechanisms and many of the streams um, of um, organised crime that exist, exist across those borders um, and throughout the rest of the UK, and their supply chains are also um, spread throughout these islands. So I think it's hugely important that um, the, the, the National um, Crime Task Force or the National Crime Agency is working closely with the PSNI, um, with the JATF, um, and uh, with the Paramilitary and Organised Crime Task Force in order to ensure that there is a joined up approach on all of those issues. With respect to budget, it is a national agency and therefore, um, to some degree, their budget is, is outside of my control and jurisdiction. But of course, where the PSNI ask for them to undertake particular duties, um, that is a different matter. As the member isn't in her place for question number five, we now move to question number six. Cash Devery Shea, Gazirim, Sir John O'Dowd, for when you cast, I call John O'Dowd. Jeremy, I could ask, can I call you Cash Devery Shea? Question six. I've recently agreed a number of recommendations flowing from the sentencing review. Working, work on completing recommendations on the remaining areas of the consultation is at a very advanced stage. An oral briefing to report on the final recommendations is scheduled for the Justice Committee on 15 April 2021. In respect of sentencing for offences causing death by dangerous driving and in advance of making any public announcements, I recently met with the Dolan and McCarraher families who have maintained ongoing interest in the review. This meeting has been widely reported in the press. I provided a written update to the Justice Committee on 17 February regarding the decisions I have reached with respect to sentencing for the case of death by dangerous driving. I anticipate a number of legislative changes will flow from the review, which I consider are best dealt with in a single sentencing bill. I intend to continue the preparatory work for that bill to be introduced early in the next mandate. Thank you, Minister, for your answers thus far. Minister, I understand as part of the review there are plans or proposals to increase the maximum tariff of 14 years for, drinking under, or for driving under the influence of drink or drugs. Given that the 14-year sentence was rarely ever used, how can the Minister assure victims of such crimes that justice will be served? Well, the, the actual proposal which has been agreed um, is that we intend to increase the maximum sentence for causing death by dangerous driving um, from 14 years to 20 years. Um, with respect to how that will impact on sentencing, as the member will be aware, every sentence will be set in the courts, um, starting with that maximum framework, um, and then they will look at the severity of the offence in question and any mitigating factors and indeed any aggravating factors which need to be taken into account in sentencing. So whilst the member is correct to say um, that the current 14-year um, sentence is very rarely used, 
The fact that all sentences that are given out are based on the 14-year maximum means that if that is increased to 20 years, the proportional um, length of sentencing, even if it is not up to the maximum, will extend um, beyond what it is currently uh, once those changes have been made. It is also I think, important to note that that is not the only change that is being proposed. Um, we are also talking about increasing um, where we are also agreed that we are going to have a discretionary life sentence as the maximum sentence available where an offender has a previous conviction for the same offence, that there would be parity in the maximum sentence, um, as is currently the case, whether it is death or serious injury that is called, caused, that we would increase the sentence for death, uh, causing death while driving disqualified to a four-year maximum, that the minimum period of mandatory disqualification for those offences should be four years unless the judge considers there are exceptional circumstances. A repeat offender within a 10-year period for a second or further conviction would be subject to a mandatory minimum disqualification of six years, and that a disqualification should not be capable of being reduced below two-thirds of the disqualification period ordered by the sentencing court or the mandatory minimum period for the offence, whichever is greater. A repeat offender for any of the offences will be disallowed from applying for a reduction of the disqualification imposed before the minimum period and uh, for the, the disqualification has been served, and disqualifications will in future take effect from the date of an offender's release from prison rather than run concurrent with their sentences. I believe that with all of those measures in place, the sentencing structure and framework will be much more robust than was the case in the past. Time for a brief question from Doug Beattie. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, Minister, just with the, the, um, the issue of the, ter- uh, the counter-terrorism uh, and sentencing bill, does that affect your view at all? Um, no, it doesn't, um, because the issues dealt with in the counter-terrorism, uh, the counter-terrorism and sentencing bill are being dealt with um, specifically as Westminster issues. No LCM was able to be agreed um, as part of the work of this assembly, and therefore our sentencing structures will continue, um, and our sentencing review will continue unaffected by that, because we were not consulting on those matters which are not devolved. That concludes our listed questions. We now move to. The period of 15 minutes of topical questions. I guess Iram Sir Trevor Lund for any question. I call Trevor Lund for a question. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker. Can I ask the Minister for an update on her department's administration of the Troubles Permanent Disablement Payment Scheme? Yes, um, and I thank the member um, both for his question and also for his long standing commitment um, to this issue and indeed the wider issue. Um, of support for victims in our community. Work has been ongoing within the Department to put in place the necessary administration arrangements to enable the Troubles Permanent Disablement Scheme to open for applications this month as planned. That includes the development of an application form and an IT system for online applications. 26 members have been appointed to the Victims Payment Boards (coughs) and sworn in, and Mr Justice McAlinden has been appointed now formally as the President of the Board with effect from today. CAPITA has also been appointed to design a medical assessment service that will assess the relevant level of disablement for applicants where necessary. The scheme could therefore open this month as planned in order to allow preparatory work on application forms by those who wish to apply. However, the President and the Victims Payment Board are ultimately responsible for deciding on the precise timescale for the launch of the scheme. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Thank the Minister for her answer. Um, 
She's almost preempted my uh, supplementary, but I really want to ask her about the, the time scale for the actual application process to begin. So when can, can, can potential applicants actually submit an application form? Well, Mr. Deputy Speaker, the President has advised that in advance, in advance of making an application, he would prefer that applicants have access to full guidance on how the medical assessments will be carried out. He has consulted with the main groups representing victims of the troubles, including the Wave Trauma Centre, Relatives for Justice, South East Fermanagh Foundation, the Eli Centre, the Commission for Victims and Survivors and the Victims and Survivors Service. On the basis of that engagement, Mr Justice McAlinden has concluded that the scheme should not open for applications until the guidance for carrying out the medical assessments has been fully designed and agreed by the Victims Payment Board. I understand that it will take a number of weeks for guidance to be completed on the process for carrying out those assessments. My officials will be continuing to engage with the representatives of the main groups to provide support to victims and survivors, and they will be kept updated on progress with development of the medical assessment guidance. They will also have an important input to the development of that guidance. Mr Justice McAlinden has also indicated that he will keep representatives of the main groups informed of progress on developments, and I'm sure that will include an indication of when the scheme will open for applications. While it will be important to take due diligence in developing the medical assessment guidance, I trust that the scheme will open for applications at the earliest possible opportunity. Victims have waited a long time for this scheme, and I am keen to ensure they have access to it as soon as possible. I fully appreciate that some victims and survivors may be concerned that the scheme will not open for applications as they had hoped, but it is important that we take into account the views of the groups who represent and deal directly with victims and survivors and who have indicated their preference not to have a two-stage process, but to delay opening so that a single-stage process can be facilitated. I call Paula Bradley. Mr. Deputy Speaker, Minister, I attended a conference last week and one of the sessions was uh, violence against women and girls. There was a female judge and a female barrister president and they both agreed that the tariffs for domestic abuse needed to be used to their maximum in order to give a clear message that domestic abuse is not tolerated in our society. Can I ask the Minister what her views on that would be? Well, um, Mr Deputy Speaker, my views on that is that there is nobody better than a judge to make such a, make such a case because ultimately the tariffs that are given for any case in court are down to the judiciary and not the Minister of Justice. The maximum tariffs are placed in the legislation, but it is up to the judges to decide whether or not they use them. And so I hope um, that the member of the judiciary who has spoken um, passionately in that regard will also convey that to her fellow judges. Paula Bradley for supplementary. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker, and I thank the Minister for her answer. And she's absolutely right. But we do need our judges to take this, this matter of domestic abuse seriously. And can I just then ask the Minister, do you believe that domestic abuse in proceedings bill, um, which has a maximum tariff, I think, of 14 years, though I stand corrected, um, will go some way um, to assisting with this? I think, as I said in, our, uh, in answer to an earlier question, the use of maximum tariffs is the issue um, for the judiciary to decide whether they use them. But I think by setting the tariffs high um, on, on these particular cases, it should send out a clear message to the judiciary from this chamber um, as to the seriousness with which we treat domestic abuse. I know that there will be training provided um, for the judiciary um, through the normal mechanisms um, in terms of dealing with the new offence, and hopefully that is something that will also be explored during that opportunity that they will have to reflect on the new offence and indeed the tariffs attached. I call Alex Easton. Speaker. 
Um, Minister, last August you started a process of engagement with relevant key stakeholders and families after the debate on Charlotte's Law. I was hoping that you could maybe give me an update on that. Well, I thank the member for his question. Um, I have met with the families as of my officials on an ongoing basis um, for a number of months now, and we have looked at a number of proposals uh, which, would, which the families are supportive of, but also we are looking at a number of other proposals which are not part of that particular framework um, to which the member refers in terms of Helen's Law. Um, but which we believe may be leverage points within the justice system that may be able to be used to further encourage people um, to disclose where remains of individuals um, are held. I think it is hugely important, um, and having met with the families, um, I'm absolutely convinced. It is not just a, a huge injustice on families that they have been robbed um, of a loved one, but to be further deprived of the opportunity to be able to go to their graveside, um, to be able to mark their passing in some tangible way, I think is not just an injustice but is an insult and is a form of torture against the individuals um, who are grieving. And I think it is very hard for people to come to terms with their grief in those circumstances. So we are working actively with the family um, and with my colleagues um, in the department in order to find a way forward that will deliver um, in reality what I think sometimes is promised um, but not delivered by some of the other mechanisms that are around, and it is something that we're looking at very carefully. I would hope to be in a position um, to move forward on this in the near future. Mr Easton, for supplementary. Thank you, um, Mr Deputy Speaker. Um, can I thank the Minister for her answer? And it's, it's quite positive. And, um, I note that she had a Twitter feed on the other day about uh, the 16th anniversary of the murder of Lisa Dorian, and I believe she is very uh, genuine on that, as, as am I. Um, can I take from her answer that she is committed to definitely doing something 100 per cent about this? Well, as the member will appreciate, I'm not going to announce um, decisions here in, in the context of questions, um, but I am absolutely genuine. Um, when I've spoken to both families who have met with us, have worked with us about what it is that they want to achieve and what it is that we will be able to deliver for them. I believe that it is important that we are honest about the limitations of what we can do, um, but at the same time that we try to be ambitious in terms of what we do. So I will obviously announce in due course our intentions in this regard, but I do think that there is an opportunity potentially um, to do something here. I think it has to be recognised that some of those who are involved in these crimes who have disappeared these individuals' bodies and deprived their families of an opportunity um, in order to be able to grieve. I think that some of those individuals will not be swayed by anything that we do in terms of legislation um, or in terms of practice. And I think we need to acknowledge that at the outset. Um, because there are some who are still in denial that those crimes, that they even committed those crimes, despite the fact that they are serving sentences for them. Um, it is also the case that in some cases no one has ever been brought to justice. And in the case, for example, of Lisa Dorian, to which the member refers, um, his own constituent, no one has even been brought to justice. And so the changes which we make to the justice system will unfortunately not benefit that family until such times as someone can be brought to justice. So the most important thing I can say, given the platform I have today, to those who are involved um, and who know where Lisa Dorian's body is and who knows what happened in her final hours, is to reflect on your conscience 
and tell the family the truth, report it to the police, um, and allow this family to grieve the loss of Lisa without further obstruction and without the further torment of not knowing where her remains lie. Um, because what you have done um, is completely wrong. It is completely unacceptable. Um, but you can help now by telling the truth and allowing the family to grieve. Call Chris Little for questions. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Can I ask the Justice Minister what work her department is undertaking to improve civil justice? I thank the member for his question. Modernisation of an area as wide in scope as the civil justice system is a significant undertaking and members will appreciate it will take considerable time. Reform is also not for my department alone. While the Department of Justice is responsible for the operation of the justice system, responsibility for substantive civil and family policy rests with the Ministers of Health and Finance. The Department has, however, made good progress in a number of areas, including provision in the Domestic Abuse and Civil Proceedings Bill to protect victims of abuse from being directly cross-examined by the perpetrator uh, and uh, with the uh, protection of special measures. Launch of a pilot to test a streamlined approach to appointing experts in public law proceedings, development of an action plan to encourage the early resolution of family law disputes, and launch of a consultation on county court jurisdiction. We are, of course, limited by what we will be able to achieve in what is an, a, a ridiculously short mandate. Um, and I plan to focus on areas where the most immediate benefits for citizens can be realised. Work on a possible work programme for the rest of the mandate is ongoing, but I'm hoping to be able to provide further detail to the Assembly in the weeks ahead. The Gillen Review made a, a significant number of wide-ranging recommendations. Many do fall outside the remit of the Department or would have significant financial, operational and cross-cutting implications, so time will be required to consider the proposals in detail. However, I am determined in what is left of this mandate to make further progress. Mr Little for a supplementary. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. I thank the Minister for her answer. And can I ask if she will be working to embed efficient and affordable dispute resolution in civil justice, including in the small claims courts? Well, yes, and the member, of course, is correct that the small claims court um, plays a significant role um, in quick resolution um, in the courts. The Department has recently launched public consultation on increasing the general civil jurisdiction of the county courts, including small claims. The key aim of that consultation is to deliver an effective justice system where citizens have appropriate access to justice with cases resolved quickly and proportionately relative to their value and their complexity. The Department is seeking the public's view on a number of proposals, including increasing the jurisdiction of the county courts from 30,000 to either 60 or 100,000, increasing the jurisdiction of district judges to either 20 or 35,000, and increasing the jurisdiction of the small claims court from £3,000 to £5,000. The Small Claims Court currently provides speedy resolution for citizens, which is key. It is a particular success of the justice system, offering the sort of affordable and efficient dispute resolution that citizens require, and so I want to build on that. The Department is consulting on increasing a limit last uplifted over a decade ago, so it is important that the financial jurisdiction remains current. 
but also that we retain the advantages of the small claims system, because, as you will be aware, many people who use the small claims court do so as litigants in person. And therefore, it is important that we don't raise the threshold for cases in the small claims court such that those um, who are defendants in the court may decide um, to equip themselves, or may be more likely to equip themselves, um, with significant legal teams, because, as you will be aware, an inequality of arms um, in that regard could present real challenges um, for, for litigants in person. Mr Dixon, I'll be able to fit in a very quick question and answer. Thank you very much. Uh, Deputy Speaker, Minister, could you perhaps outline to the House the need for urgency in respect of the damages return on investment bill, please? Thank the member for his question. Um, the urgent passage of the bill, which was introduced um, earlier this afternoon, is required to allow a new stable personal injury discount rate to be set that will end the ongoing delays in personal injury claims and allow those claimants who have suffered serious life-changing injuries to receive the full compensation to which they are entitled as soon as possible. The current discount rate was set in 2001. The financial investment markets have changed significantly since then, and the rate that we have currently set assumes more of a return than a personal injury claimant would likely make on their lump sum compensation. The risk to claimants is that if they settle now, they will be undercompensated. However, if a new rate is set under the current law, the rate would reduce so much that it would likely to overcompensate victims, with the result that most defendants would not settle. So, while many personal injury cases can be settled by parties without court hearing, um, the current delays in the settlement of cases as are a result of uncertainty on the discount rate. To resolve the uncertainty, I want to legislate for a new framework for calculating that rate that achieves 100 per cent compensation, which is my legal duty. I would hope that we can work with the committee, um, having proposed a, a, committee, uh, a short committee stage um, to allow the, complete, the completion of scrutiny of this bill as expeditiously as possible, ideally so the bill can complete its passage through this House before the summer. Members, that concludes topical questions. If you just take your ease while we change the top table here. Thank you.